Everyone, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. As always, taping off-site these days, as we all are in our homes. The bright side of that is I get to look today at five incredibly gorgeous women on my screen, and uh, I've just sneaked out of the Christian Left conference, and, you, and we're going to take some of that, and you'll hear some of that on the podcast on the show in shows to come. But today, I really wanted to highlight folk from my own community who live in the Roncesvalles, Mcdonnell, Parkdale area, and uh, and a recent action and article in McLean's and what grew out of that. It's really interesting because I believe, it, in a sense, it's anti-racist work in action. So uh, that's why I wanted to have them on. And I'm going to introduce them just very quickly here. We've got Liz Ikirko. Uh, she's an artist, curator, lecturer, mother of two, living in Roncesvalles. We have Karina Vernon. She's an associate professor at U of T in the Scarborough campus. Uh, she also teaches Canadian writing and Canadian black writing. And Kara Stewart Augustino, personal trainer and community advocate. Melanie Carrington, uh, mum. I think there are many of us who are mums on this panel today, uh, community advocate and Mari McKenna Edwards, who's a community educator and mum. Welcome all to the Radical Reverend Show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Thank you. So let's, let's start, Kara. I think it was you who brought this all to my attention because we knew each other from political work. So maybe you could start by talking about how you got together in the first place and then what happened. Well, it's a bit of a bizarre story, isn't it, uh, friends? I have known um, most of these women in different ways, but we didn't all come together until very recently. So Mari and I have known each other for the better part of a decade. Um, Liz, I met more re recently. Karina and Melanie, I've known for a couple of years. And when there was a sign that went up in our neighborhood, an All Lives Matter sign, went up at a local business on Ronson's Vales. We were all talking about it in our different channels and clearly upset and frustrated. And so I started a group message as I just wanted my folks to talk to a place that felt safe to talk about what I was feeling. And we all started just supporting each other and talking together and realizing that we all kind of knew each other in different ways. So that's sort of how, I guess we could say our, our little group, our little crew kind of started. It was a, born a little bit out of frustration and a lot out of support. And then what happened? So how did you end up having your picture taken and in McLean's magazine? Right, right, it kept flowing. So we, um, there was a, after the sort of initial frustration on social media, on Facebook in particular, around this All Lives Matter sign, there was an article that came out on medium.com from Stephen Dorsey that talked about creating on-ramps. And we were not in full agreement with some of the things that Stephen Dorsey had to say in his article. And I can't remember, one of us just sort of said, well, maybe we should share our own perspectives because as members of the Black community, we are not a monolith. We do not all feel the same way and we want to be able to demonstrate that. 
So we started writing and Liz um, knew someone at McLean's Magazine and pitched the, uh, the story. And next thing we knew, we were uh, writing an article for them and posing on very, actually we took a number of pictures at different places on Roncesvalles. And, uh, and it was the, the church steps, the uh, rainbow steps at the Roncesvalles United Church that were chosen for the cover of the story. And so maybe we'll go to Liz next. Uh, so Liz, uh, do you want to add anything to, to Kara's story so far? And then maybe take us the next few steps, then what happened? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think um, something that Kara mentioned that I think is really important is the fact that um, through this conversation that we are having, um, just messaging each other, and um, and especially after we realized there was a you know quite a significant kind of um, uproar online in terms of the All Lives Matter sign, um, and and the response was quite quick. Uh, but it was interesting because we you, you you see a lot of that happening recently where there's something that happens it triggers a a big conversation that lasts two minutes and then it's gone. And so I think one of the things that we, when we saw the article by Stephen Dorsey, that we were just really interested in how we can actually um, address the numerous um, issues that this um, this issue uh, reflects in our neighborhood and that we know exists across Canada. And, um, and the fact that we all have lived from Victoria through the prairies um, to here, you know, really show like we kept reflecting on those experiences and realizing that this is something that we really wanted to wanted to address and i think one of the things in, ter in terms of thinking about this not being like uh reflecting that blackness is not a monolith we have numerous different opinions and ideas i think that was also really important in this op-ed is that we're five black women and we live in the west end but we also come with varying um understandings and ideas and beliefs. And, and I think that was something that was so important for us to reflect as well. Um, and also to, to have that conversation, um, you know, in relation to Stephen Dorsey's article. Um, and then in terms of the photograph, um, you know, I guess maybe I'll just say that like, so the, the um, article came out um, and, and has been shared like I, I'm not sure, I haven't been able to tally how many times, but it's been shared, I think, probably over 60 times um, that I can see online, which was great. And the feedback's been wonderful for the most part. Um, but the uh, Reverend Ann Hines from the Roncesvalles United Church um, made a statement on Facebook, um, as well as on the Roncesvalles United Church um, website, um, saying that, that she was not informed of the photo being taken on the church steps. Um, which is true, and um, and that she though though the Roncesvalles United Church supports Black Lives Matter, um, she was troubled by um, uh, some of the perspectives that we presented uh, in our McLean's op-ed, and that she was going to contact McLean's um, to make sure that they knew that this was that our opinions did not reflect the opinions of the Roncesvalles United Church. Thank you, Liz. I'm going to maybe Karina will go to you next. And um, I, I want to go back to the All Lives Matter, which is racist. Come on, let's just say it. It's a racist statement. Did you contact the business person who put that up? What happened there? 
um, yeah, when we saw that the All Lives Matter sign went up prominently in our neighborhood, the home hardware marquee is a brightly lit, very prominent uh, sign in our community. So what is what goes up there is very visible. So it was immediately troubling. And we saw chatter about it online on the Facebook group. And we immediately saw the owner of uh, Home Hardware's apology. Um, I, I'll put apology in scare quotes there because um, he said that he put up the sign not understanding the implications of the sign. He said that he put it up in ignorance, not in malice. Um, and that, that apology, again in scare quotes, was enough for many people in our community. Um, but for us, it was not. And for us, it raised a lot of questions um, about what does racism look like in Canada? Um, and um, how do responses to racism look like in Canada? What does Canadian anti-Black racism look like? And for us, that's a lot of what sparked the reflections in the McLean's article. So um, uh, four of us shared our own experiences of racism. And what struck, what struck me particularly about this thing, I didn't know All Lives Matter. I didn't know it sounded, Len has subsequently said, it sounded like a friendly message. And we are just so profoundly struck by the amount of white privilege involved in that. How do you not know at the height of a black civil rights struggle that that phrase, All Lives Matter, is used to push back against black people fighting for their lives against police brutality? How do you not know when you're a leader in a community? How do you not educate yourself about what the community is going through? Um, and I saw something great online that said, um, not related to this, but in relation to something different, that you don't have to be a racist to be racist. You know, we are steeped in a system of white supremacy and it flows through you know, anyone who is not actively pushing back against racism. If you're not anti-racist, then that white supremacy will find actors to act it out. And it seems to us that this is a, a prime example of that. So this is what we wanted to take on in the article. And then the subsequent response, the church's response, only, only highlighted how necessary it is to be anti-racist in this moment. If you're just tuning in to the Radical Reverend Show, I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo. We're talking with five phenomenal women on the show today, talking about this egregious All Lives Matter poster that turned up on Roncesvalles in our West End community and how they reacted and did something about it. And it became a Plains article. And then the kind of fallout that happened there. By the way, I did ask and invite uh, Reverend Ann Hines to come on from Roncesvalles United Church. She declined, but uh, maybe I'll, I'll turn this to uh, Melanie. Do you want to talk about what happened then? I mean, they sent this ridiculous letter. I mean, I'm just going to name it. It was ridiculous. Not understanding the issue at all. So compounding the problem of the All Lives Matter and the apology, I should have known better kind of apology. Um, and then you get the church weighing in saying, well, you shouldn't have been standing on our stairs in the first place as if that's not public property. Um, what, what happened, uh, Melanie, from your point of view? Um, so from my point of view, the Facebook post uh, that was placed online um, 
like uh, one of my lovely friends here mentioned, it was also placed on the website. It was placed on a number of places, um, Facebook pages, uh, which relate to our community. So there was a clear intention uh, for a, a breadth of people in our community to understand that uh, the Roncesvalles United Church didn't want us there um, and that they didn't agree with what we had to say in our article. So um, these posts have since been deleted, but a couple pieces that stood out for me in them was um, that Reverend Anne uh, Hines had mentioned that we were standing on their steps. Um, that we weren't given permission to use their steps in that manner. Um, that uh, a quote uh, from our article, which uh, ended up being used as the header for the article, was at odds with the foundational beliefs of Christianity. Um, that our article um, didn't highlight forgiveness. Um, and Reverend I. Hines went on to say that forgiveness is the start of how we live more inclusively and love more greatly. Um, and she also said in um, that post that uh, the sentiments that we expressed um, in our article didn't reflect the opinion of their faith community. Um, so for me, um, a lot of what was said uh, was a clear uh, replication of what we were admonishing in our article. Um, it was um, it was divisive. It was clearly um, taken as an opportunity to uh, make it an us versus them, uh, which in turn just goes ahead and and it maintains the status quo that we were trying to disrupt with our article in the first place. Um, it was, um, it became an opportunity to silence uh, the voices, not just of us, but of anyone else um, who spoke up in solidarity because the Facebook posts, when people um, had made comments that were um, in support of um, the article, and questioning the intent of the Facebook post itself um, was quickly deleted along with all of that labor um, that people put in um, in order to say, hey, this is not okay. Maury, I wanna get you in on this conversation. You're the one voice we haven't heard from yet. And welcome, by the way, Sandy Hudson is also joining us uh, listening in. So we'll of course have her on later in the show. Um, so, so you just heard you know, what Melanie was saying about this Facebook post that then got deleted. Um, I'm going to go back to Liz too after you because she wrote this beautiful letter in response to that. But is there anything you want to add to the story so far? Um, I think that I would, I would add that um, part of, uh, I, I want to build on this idea of the complexities of different perspectives that we bring to this conversation. And I think that that's one of Karina's called us, you know, one of the things Karina said earlier on was that, you know, uh, in our, in our thinking about this is that we are a community, right? And Kara said that part of what brought us together was support and, and relationship and being present with one another. And I think that one of the things that I really felt as a community member was that in that post, there wasn't the moment of hearing 
and being present with the experience that we were trying to share about what this is in our community, right? Like what that meant for us and, and you know, as we're all parents in this space that, uh, who, are, who are contributing to this article, and that what we were trying to say about what this meant for us and our families, right? Like I very much was thinking about the experience of my kids and what it meant for my kids to walk up the street and see that, who know what that means, right? And, and, had, uh, and I have uh, one of my kids' permissions to, permission to say that right before the lockdown, their school experience was dealing with the N-word in, in their classroom. So for, for my kiddo, who had just gone through that experience and similar, similarly dealt with the conversations about I didn't know and the minimalization of the impact of who carries the impact of that, uh, I, I want I my offering, and I'm saying this, and when I'm speaking to whiteness, I'm also speaking to myself because I, my proximity to whiteness is so great, and so I am very much speaking to myself as well. That, that there is, uh, the part of what we were talking about is the moving on and the frustration with, with what was posted on the Facebook, um, on the Facebook pages is the, the moving on and the anger about property without there being a moment of a beat to acknowledge what this meant in the everyday moments and experiences for those of us within the community. Yeah, Liz, I'm gonna go back to you because you wrote a beautiful letter um, in response to that Facebook uh, post uh, that the church put out. Uh, and I'm remembering just uh, if you're tuning in now, Radical Reverend Show, Sherry DeNovo, uh, we're talking about an All Lives Matter uh, poster that appeared at a central point in, in our downtown West End community of Roncesville, McDonnell. And, and Liz, one of, the, one of the bizarre things about this whole thing is I, I think if you asked um, the home hardware you know, owner and you asked the people at Roncesvalles United Church, they would see themselves as progressives. They would see themselves as uh, the whole community kind of sees itself as progressive. West End, Parkdale, you know, Roncesvalles, McDonnell, you know, kind of younger, hipper, you know. Um, so Liz, talk about your letter because it was beautiful. Um, I'll just stress that um, the letter was um, co-written by all of us. I would say that Karina and Melanie really took the forefront on the letter, um, which uh, maybe sidebar, but I think one of the most amazing things about this this process um, has been the fact that we've all worked so amazingly together. Um, there's been this really beautiful way that we've all shared the responsibilities and the labor that we've put in, and that that wouldn't that this kind of work couldn't have. I don't think that individually I could have done this. I, I don't know. I can't speak for everybody, but I, I think that there has been so many hours that we've logged um, putting into this work um, and, and that it, it, I really am so appreciative of being able to, to be working with these four other amazing, talented writers and women. So um, in terms of the letter, so yeah, we um, crafted this letter um, that we sent to Reverend Ann Hines, as well as um, a number of other uh, individuals, including you, Sherry, um, and organization or committees, a part of the uh, United Church of Canada. Um, because I think what was really important for us was to not only I, um, share the, the, the pain, the hurt and the frustration at being um, ostracized from um, such a prominent um, 
and place of welcome or that should be a place of welcome uh, in our community. Um, but also to, we wanted to reflect on the fact that this is a united church and that we, we've seen, we did the research, we, we understand that there are um, numerous um, aspects of the United Church that are doing anti-racist work, that are doing the work that needs to be done at the Roncesvalles United Church. And so I think a part of this letter was not only, we weren't, we're not interested in, um, in, in admonishing anyone and like just tearing someone down. And I think this really also plays into the idea of, of how we're working against this idea of cancel culture. I think really what's most important to, to us is that Reverend Ann Hines understands the, the pain and like the difficulties in what she did and the ways that that affected not only us, but so many people in her community. Um, and that this work has to be done individually, um, as well as like uh, structurally, systemically across um, a number of different platforms. So this, yeah, this was um, so important. I think that, um, yeah, what I think we really wanted to see was a po the possibility of being able to stay with this sense of discomfort. And I think that's one of the things that we really see through the structures of white supremacy is that when, when a whiteness is challenged, when there is this level of discomfort, um, that the, the, the first action is to, to separate and like to just be like, oh, I, you know, I have, I don't need to take any responsibility for this. Um, so maybe it's like that flight kind of feeling or there's this disavowal. Um, but really, I think what's so important is staying with that sense of discomfort, staying with that sense of, okay, so I've maybe made someone feel um, bad in whatever way. And, and now I have, I have an opportunity to act from this place. And I think what Mari said is also really important to recognize that um, is our own proximity to whiteness. And I think really what this is, is about um, privilege. And that's something that we all carry, right? So there's different ways that we have to identify the privilege that we have and how that affects other people and how that, you know, how we can accidentally or maliciously um, utilize that to, to either erase someone or not allow someone to exist in spaces. And so that was, that was really at the core of what we really wanted to address with, with Reverend Anne Hines. And I don't want this to be all about her because she's indicative of a much obviously larger problem called white fragility, white saviorism and white supremacy, which, uh, you know, um, we all partake in to some degree, um, certainly we white folk. Um, but she did apologize and that needs to be noted. Again, though, you know, we who are in nonprofit organizations and religious organizations, we're all struggling with um, with kind of getting people on board. I know at our church we put, we have right at the front of the church, uh, a pride flag with a black fist and Black Lives Matter and, and, a, and a letter from our chair that's right on our website um, as well. Uh, 
but I mean, I, I, I was walking and I'll just tell the story. I was walking down and there's a very, won't name their names, but a very expensive club on the lakeshore south of us. You all know what I'm talking about that has a Black Lives Matter sign. And I'm thinking, no, but like, come on, like you have to be wealthy to be a member of this place. Like really, do you actually, so, and, and, and maybe I'll, I'll uh, invite Sandy in on this, but I mean, you know, ask number one is defunding the police 50%. Is, is that what you're really saying? Are you really, when you're saying you support Black Lives Matter, are you supporting the demands of Black Lives Matter? So let me just introduce you. I mean, for those who don't know who you are, they should. Um, but Sandy, founder of Black Lives Matter Canada and Toronto, founder of the Black Liberation Collective, uh, one of the founders of Black Legal Action Center, a multiple award winner now in LA and working on law degree, Sandy. So welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you. So pleased to be here. Yeah, so you're listening to the women's story about this all grew out of a racist poster in our community. What are you thinking about this? I mean, it's just so much of what we have to go through as Black people, all of these types of incidents that just feel like an onslaught into your psyche when you're just going through your day. And I, you know, it's just it. It continues to be quite frustrating that this, uh, um, you know, the commitment that people have to anti-Blackness, even through a pandemic, <laughs> it's just uh, really quite a lot to deal with and too much to deal with. And so um, I'm very happy to be on the line today with these women as well. Melanie wanted to say something. Melanie? Um, I just wanted to build on uh, what Sandy had to say. Um, one of the things I had uh, mentioned to my lovely friends here um, when all of this was happening was how hard we worked. So Liz had mentioned our labor, but how hard we worked in order to craft a message that we could send to people who look and feel like us, along with people who in our community would read it in hopes that maybe they would hear and understand what we had to say. Um, the corollary of that is these quick impulses that come out of whiteness and privilege that allow someone to respond in a divisive and hurtful manner quickly and then be able to retract from it. So, I know that you mentioned um, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, and that's another thing that I want to focus on around um, this use of whiteness is this idea of policing, right? Um, so uh, me and my lovely ladies here have talked about the idea of policing being a verb. It's something that not only police do, and that was clearly indicated by what happened to us um, in use of this uh, um, picture um, on the steps painted rainbow intended to be inclusive. So we were being policed with a focus on property over us, over a community who is experienced and was currently experiencing harm in an area that is predominantly white. And this has again recently happened. Um, Earlier this week, I don't know if you're aware of this, Sherry, I just recently shared um, with my lovely friends here about what happened earlier this week in the beaches. 
The beaches, again, a very similar area. So our area is about 26% um, visible uh, minorities as per visible minorities in quotes, um, as per the 2016 Toronto census and the beaches area is 34%. Um, and earlier this week, a, a young black boy was in the park with his mother play, and a friend playing with Nerf guns, wearing their face masks as uh, is needed when you're living in, in a pandemic. And someone called the police. Someone called the police to advise them that there was a child in a park with a gun. After everything that has happened, after everything that is currently happening, after what happened to Tamir Rice, someone can quickly pick up a phone to call the police about something that their most inner psyche decided was a threat that made them unsafe. So this idea of, of policing and the, the quickness in which it can happen when people are in a proximity to whiteness is really something that um, people in proximity to whiteness need to investigate um, if they do want to be as progressive, if they want to be actionable in their progressiveness um, as much as they say that they are, um, because this is killing us. Yeah, literally. We in Canada, of course, like to pride ourselves on something that doesn't exist, which is our, our kinder, gentler nation than south of the border. And yet we forget that we invented apartheid here with our colonization. Um, so it's in our DNA too, not to mention the fact that our city council couldn't even deduct 10% from our police budget. In fact, gave them more money, you know, paid for body cams, whereas some American cities are actually defunding the police at a, a far greater rate. So I talked about this and please check it out on the law and disorder with some lawyers, but I wanna get back to the situation in the West End of Toronto. We're talking about here on the Radical Reverend Show with some amazing, women activists from the community who really stood up against racism with a sign that appeared on the hardware threads that all lives matter, which I hope everybody that listens to the show gets is racist. And then what happened from there? Um, because they had their picture taken on some church steps. An apology came forward from that church, from the, the clergy there. One of the things that struck me is that she was asking for your help in educating her. What was the response to the apology there? What did you pick up from that? I mean, that request for added labor happens to all of us all the time. <laughs> um, that, um, that ask that we be the ones to step in to, um, to give them the, the education they feel that we can provide them with, without any acknowledgement that it's emotional labor for us. It might be an academic pursuit for the person on the other side, a, a learning moment, but for us, that is emotional labor and it takes its toll. We have been exhausted doing this work the last couple of weeks, writing the article and sharing our experiences of racism in various cities that we've lived in was difficult work in and of itself. And the, to then be attacked for, um, for our words to be told that, um, that it, our words were not in sync with the teachings of the of Christianity, which, which is, by the way, absolutely 
wrong. <laughs> Continue, sorry. Yeah, um, but that that really care, that really put a weight on us. Um, and we found ourselves really trying to search and understand were we did, were there things that we said that were out of sync with um, with the Christian faith? Were were we misunderstanding the teachings on forgiveness? You know, there is there's a lot of labor that we put in, um, and to then be asked to provide more help and support when we all know that there are supports within the United Church of Canada for this clergy member to seek out. Um, it's frustrating. It's, I mean, when the, um, when the All Lives Matter sign went up and as we know the business owner who put that sign up was also a leader of the local business improvement association. I reached out um, to that association and expressed my frustration with the racism I've experienced on Rotson's Vales over the almost 20 years that I've lived here and how enough is enough. Um, we need to see some change within the association. We, this is, if this member put a sign up in ignorance, this community member put it up in ignorance, then they are not someone who should be leading a community organization. And again, the, um, the letter I received back was a request for more free labor. Would I, you know, provide them with more education? Would I sit on an anti-racism committee with folks who have not shown that they have an understanding of anti-racist practices whatsoever? So it's not new, but every time it it happens, it feels uh, it feels frustrating. Maybe Karina, you want to weigh in now. Um, so, what next? What next for your group? You have a group now. Do you have a name? <laughs> Should I mention the name that we were jokingly? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so, um, gosh, well, you know, in 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 the letter that we wrote to um, Reverend Hines um, in response to her 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 public posts, sort of saying that she doesn't support the message of our letter. We, she said, on the one hand, she supports Black Lives Matter, but then, you know went on to not support Black Lives Matter in all kinds of ways. So we broke that down for her in the letter. Um, and we, as, as others have mentioned, we took a lot of time crafting that letter. We wrote it collaboratively. And then one of her response, she, you know, she uh, re repeatedly said it was a beautiful letter. And then she went on to ask if any of us were writers. He called it an articulate letter. And this is something that Black folks get a lot when we speak out. It, it demonstrates the expectations folks have about us. Oh, you're so articulate. Uh, it immediately is. Um, I mean, it's condescending, um, it's insulting, um, and just reveals a profound level of anti-Blackness. You know, what were you expecting? Um, so we jokingly uh, talked about um, perhaps starting a website or a podcast called So Articulate. So Articulate, what now is So Articulate? This has clearly been an education that, let's face it, people should have already had and should have already found out so that you didn't have to provide free labor for them to do this. But you did. and hopefully they are. Are there next steps, just even in your own community? What are the next steps? Anybody want to jump in on that? Karen, do you want to jump on that? Because we have thought about collaborating on, on future projects, writing projects. Um, our lives intersect in a bunch of different ways. And we thought that in those intersections, we might find some interesting things to write about. But maybe we can bounce back to Kara. Yeah, Kara? 
So one of this might not come as a surprise to you, Sherry, as you've known me for many years, that I um, chair the equity committee at my kids' school, um, uh, part of the council, and um, Mari chairs the equity committee at her kids' um, school. So one of the things that we've talked about is uh, working with the Ward 7 schools. It's the ward that, um, that we live in, connecting our um, ward schools together with a special focus on equity and seeing if we can um, collaborate on some projects to get some positive movement in this entire community, not just in our um, smaller school groups. So that's one of the things that, that we're talking about. Sounds wonderful. And I want to thank you all for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, we've been talking to Liz, Karina, Kara, Melanie, and Mari. Thank you all for your hard work. Sorry that you had to go through this. Sorry you had to do it. It's horrendous. But uh, listen, please feel free to come back on the show anytime and let us know what you're going to be doing in the future because it sounds exciting. Melanie, did you want to have the last word? I just wanted to share one additional um, thing that really spoke to us out of all of this um, was that dangerousness that comes with entrenched whiteness, um, which is what ultimately ends up being divisive and individualistic. Um, so just like in our article, um, we were asking people to be acting, not just saying Black Lives Matter, but acting in a way um, that makes it a reality because everyone will benefit when Black Lives Matter. And I think that one thing that I wanna leave um, people with is actually taking a look at their um, underlying beliefs around this movement. Um, because when you look at, like for example, the video of uh, Raven Wings um, outside that was taken outside of the police station, the intention of the and and the action of the Black Lives Matter movement is something that is filled with love and inclusiveness. It's justice-minded. Its sole intention or main intention is to build community and bring everyone along. So really just asking people to investigate what makes them so uncomfortable and be uncomfortable so that you can join us in making a better world for everyone. Thank you so much, Melanie. Great note to go out on. And now we're going to turn uh, this over. You're all welcome to stay, of course, and listen to her, to Sandy. Sandy, since you founded Black Lives Matter in Canada and in Toronto, that was a perfect segue to talk to you. What's it like in L.A.? Oh, L.A., it feels actually quite similar to Toronto. Uh, and maybe that's because I'm inside my house consuming all Canadian news and organizing with Canadian organizers. And it doesn't really feel like I've left uh, my community that much. But um, I have been going out uh, to there's weekly protests uh, down here outside of uh, the Justice Centre. And so I have been going out to those. And it's just it's a very similar feeling of of love and, uh, and joy, but, uh, you know, righteous indignation and speaking truth to power as well. Um, and uh, there's a lot of closeness between the BLM LA chapter and the BLM, BLM Toronto chapter. So it's been nice to be out here. So I want to go back to this, you know, everybody 
putting Black Lives Matter on everything and, you know, and not understanding what the actual demands are of Black Lives Matter. Um, I was out at the No Pride in Policing demonstration outside of the police headquarters here in Toronto on College Street and Des was there and many others. Uh, but, you know, the, the list of demands and I, I've run out of people, white people, who've said, well, we didn't know that that's what it meant. What did you think it meant? Just that you're, you're supposed to like black people, like <laughs> that there are no demands. What do you think about that? In a sense, the name of the movement has gone everywhere and is global and thank you. But the substance of the movement, what's the next steps there? Yeah, I think we're at this moment. I was just describing this in a in a um, talk that I was giving with the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, where uh, people, uh, it seemed like four years ago in 2016, people were very resistant to even say Black Lives Matter. Everyone seemed to to hate the organization and to and not. I'm not talking about the Black community here. I'm talking about outside the Black community. Uh, seemed to be very very resistant um, to to saying those words um, and associating themselves with, with the movement. Fast forward to 2020, and in part because of all of the work done by organizers, in part because of um, some obviously awful um, situations that have been publicized because they're on camera, people are now ready to embrace and say Black Lives Matter, but they're doing it in a very individual way, just to as though it's um, a way to say something more about yourself than about the world that we live in. To say, I believe that Black Lives Matter, me saying Black Lives Matter means that I am not a bad person and I wish that everybody lived great lives, which is not enough. And so um, this year when the, uh, you know, earlier this summer when the, when the movement started to, well, actually really right after, the weekend after um, uh, George Floyd and Regis Korczynski Paquette were killed, a bunch of organizers got on a call and we said, we can no longer just say, uh, Black Lives Matter, this is the moment to really push forward, defund the police. It's got to be, people have to finish the sentence, you know, like Black Lives Matter, so defund the police. Black Lives Matter, so get police out of schools. Black Lives Matter, so, and on and on and on, right? Like we have to shift uh, so that people understand that you cannot say this uh, without without putting action behind it. And so in some ways, I'm glad that we're finally having this tension publicly because we can talk about it. We can say, no, 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 no. It is not good enough for you to put up a sign or to just say, hey, I donated to this organization. We need your support behind these policy changes that will change the living conditions of Black people everywhere. Absolutely. And uh, since we live in a neoliberal capitalist world, um, those those go deep. Um, I want to focus just on that demand of the defund the police um, that has, you know, had some reaction in some American cities, just reading about Austin, for example, in Texas. Uh, what do you think the resistance is up here? And partly this is systemic and you're taking law, so you know. Um, I mean, they, they operate so independently, the police board here. It doesn't seem like it has political oversight, but of course it has political oversight. I mean, the, the province of Ontario could change it if they wanted to, they don't. Um, the city of Toronto could do something they don't want to, um, the majority of them anyway. So next steps here for we Canadians, and you know our context better than anybody. 
Well, yeah, I I've been really disappointed to at the resistance from uh you know, my own community. Like I, you know, Toronto likes to think of itself as a progressive city. Canada likes to think of itself as better than the U.S. And the amount of uh, resistance to even talking about the issue from uh, people in power and uh, policymakers is unbelievable. And this is the largest movement that I've ever seen in Canada. There, We've been tracking the... Um, the protests. We have some researchers, um, both in the United States and Canada, who have been tracking all the protests in Canada in that first month, um, in uh, just after May and June. There were, uh, in 70 cities in Canada, protests. And most of those cities had more than one protest. I have never seen that before. That's never happened before. So for power to respond with silence, um, says a little something about our democracy, I think, and the state of it. Um, and I've just been, you know, really upset about that. I, in the United States, you know, we're seeing in Oakland, um, they're uh, demilitarizing or disarming all frontline police officers. You know, in Seattle, they've reduced the police budget by 50%. And in so doing, have taken uh, police out of schools, have committed to no longer policing unhoused people, which is so such a big win. Uh, in LA, um, they've reduced the police budget, though not enough. Uh, you know, in, in Minneapolis, they've committed to abolishing the police department altogether and coming up with a new services. And so I don't know that Canada can talk about being a moral authority anymore when at all. I don't know if we ever really could, <laughs> but um, can talk about being a moral authority when here in Toronto, um, I say here because I'm really still in Toronto in my brain. Um, here in Toronto, uh, you know, we've got issues with police being involved in sex trafficking. We've got uh, issues with police being involved in this tow truck scandal. We've seen what happened with DeFonte Miller and the Terrio brothers. There's just all these different examples of corruption and disgusting behavior um, towards Black people and also just generally um, as a, a really corrupt institution institution um, uh, that is supposed to be a service provider. And we've done nothing like ever <laughs> to, to rein it in. And uh, it just goes to show why we have to say things like Black Lives Matter, um, that our politicians don't respond. I know it's, it's, uh, it's disgusting is what it is. Um, talking, of course, to Sandy Hudson, uh, founder of Black Lives Matter in Canada and Toronto, um, and uh, talking about defunding the police. Uh, partly, it seems to me that the mainstream media has a, a lot of blood on its hands, quite literally, on, in, on this front in Canada. Um, we're just not hearing. We're, we're, we have a, a weird mainstream media that doesn't seem to be taking defunding the police seriously, although Canadians are. like that. I don't know, Sandy, if you, you must be aware of the Ipsos poll that came out, where 51% yeah. of Canadians right across the board said that they, we should be defunding the police, and that, was, yeah. that number was a lot higher for people 38 and under. So clearly Canadians are to the left of mainstream media on this and, and significantly to the left of our political parties. I personally, and listen, I love some of those people that caucus at Queen's Park, but I just want to hear the NDP say defund the police, those three I words. I mean, come on, like, please. Why can't they say those <laughs> three words, you know? Come on. Um, anyway, uh, we can rant about that. So, so what, like, 
and, and thank you. Um, and I've said this many times, the uprising has really accomplished more in weeks than politicians, governments, and you know, commissions and SIU and everybody else has done in decades. So in terms of reforming the police, certainly south of the border. What, what's the what are the next steps here, north of the border? Yeah, I think um, one thing is that uh, the media piece that you've that you've spoken about. Um, just to to put a point on that, I <laughs> agree. It's really really frustrating, and um, I just hope for your listeners. Like one of the one of the number one things that I'm noticing lately that a media says to me whenever a defund the police comes up in an interview, it's the very first question they ask is, "Do you mean?" defund the police or do you mean abolish the police and i just you know now i'm going to completely address that right off the front uh, off the bat every single time i'm asked because that is a corollary question it's not a question about that's real nobody wants to really know the answer to that what they are asking is are you a reasonable person or are you an unreasonable person and it's like such a bizarre way to try to um, make that determination. Here's what's the most reasonable thing we can do is look at the service and say, is it anti-Black? Yeah, then maybe we need to change what's anti-Black. And is is it working? No, then maybe we need to change what's not working. And in the case of the Toronto police, I have not found a thing <laughs> that is working in the way that it's supposed to be working. And I just, uh, for me, it's like so, so very urgent. I think uh, one of the very, the first few things that are urgent that we should do, obviously defunding the police. I really want uh, the city council to reconsider that. If it was very disappointed by the discussion that they had. Um, but I, we need to work on building new services that will provide the type of safety and security that we need in our society. Um, we, we do need an emergency mental health um, unit because um, according to Statistics Canada, upwards of 50 to 80% of calls to police are not about crime. They are often about things like alarms going off and uh, things like uh, someone having a mental health crisis. And what they call those are calls for service. Um, and they're, they, they are not considered necessarily police work, but the police are responding to that, to that stuff. And we know from the Yakabuchi report that was released in 2014 um, that people who are having some sort of mental distress are far more likely to be killed by the police if they are called. And so why, why would we not uh, create a new service where people get the health support that they need. It just doesn't seem to make sense. You know, uh, the other thing that I think is a, a really big priority is um, uh, women and gender-based violence issues. Less than 10% of sexual assaults are reported to the police. And every day in Canada, at least 300 women are turned away from shelters because there's not enough funding to support the need of people who are trying to escape um, largely domestic violence situations. I don't understand why we don't have um, a, a service that will uh, take care of the urgent and emergent needs of people who face gender-based violence. It doesn't make any sense that, I mean, this has been an issue for so long and 
uh, people just assume, oh, well, these people can call the police. But in fact, the police are perpetrators of gender-based violence and have an awful misogynist culture. And that is one of the reasons why they don't deal with these things very well. And it just goes to show, you know, who really matters in society, um, that these things haven't been considered and these services haven't already been created because these aren't new problems. Absolutely. And, and the other one I would just add to that is um, uh, the stupid war on drugs that we're still fighting um, north and south of the border. But I mean, they should just criminalize drugs. I mean, that that's absolutely that is absolutely a racist war, as we all know. And um, and here it's uh, and that's also been responsible for for deaths, which is why, again, the NDP really should. Uh, this is why, again, the NDP really should. Uh, take up this mantle because it was one of their platform points to decriminalize all drugs. It's like one of the big issues towards defunding the police. Stop criminalizing uh, people who um, may need some other sort of support. And instead of incarcerating them uh, and criminalizing them and putting money towards surveilling them, like that, you know, I agree with the NDP statement on that. So then why, why can they not support <laughs> you know, um, blanket unapologetically defunding the police as well. I know it's, it's outrageous. Uh, speaking again here to Sandy Hudson, and uh, of course you all know her founder of Black Lives Matter in Canada and Toronto. Um, Sandy, you're taking a law degree. I just want to finish. We've only got a couple of minutes left <laughs> on a personal note. Um, so what do you hope to do with that? What's in the future for Sandy Hudson? You know, I don't know <laughs> what I plan to do with it. Part of the reason why I did it is because I was at um, I was at I was doing social justice education at the University of Toronto, and my thesis had a lot of uh, scholars um, like Kimberly Crenshaw and Shirley Harris, um, these Black women feminist scholars who um, have given so much to us in terms of uh, the concept of intersectionality, the concept of property as uh, whiteness as property. And I was like, where are these teachers? Where are they? Maybe I'll do a PhD wherever they're at. Turns out they're all at UCLA Law. <laughs> so they, um, I now have some really excellent professors and I just was really following the ideas and that's why I'm out here. I don't know yet uh, what it'll look like um, uh, once I'm through and how I will use it. There are so many options, um, but I, I promise you that it's going to be um, uh, continuing the work that I'm doing now. Well, we, we need somebody, we need new leadership in politics in this country. So hopefully you return and provide that too. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> something to think about. Um, thank yes. you so much, Sandy. Uh, been on with Sandy Hudson talking about, of course, defunding the police and Black Lives Matter. And thank you again to all of the women who really stood up and uh, showed what anti-racist action looks like in action in the West End of our city. Uh, please also out there in radio land and podcast land, uh, do let me know what you think about this in all shows. And I, now I'm gonna go back to the Christian Left Conference, which as I said, 260 people showed up. It was my dream child, which is great from Singapore to Ireland. Um, so I'm gonna go back, um, panels there on indigenous uh, justice and uh, anti-racism as well. Um, and we will be featuring that on the show in the future. So let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what you're doing. Let me know what you think of this show. Love you out there. And thank you again to all the incredible women who shape our world. Till the next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Oh, Lord,